Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. All right, as we discussed last time, as you guys remember, uh, we were uh, going to start Luke. So today's going to be an introduction uh, to Luke, to the gospel according to Luke. And then we're going to jump into a parable within Luke, Luke chapter 16, verse 19 through 31, the, the rich man and the man named Lazarus. Uh, but as we get going, uh, we will, as I said, we'll begin with a good introduction to Luke. It will be very relatively quick. Uh, there's so much you can discuss and so much uh, discussions that are still being had about this gospel and how it was created and who created it and uh, how it all worked out. And so this is just... Uh, one quick introduction to it and um, if we were wanting to do a full introduction to the book of Luke would take take several sessions to do it justice but we'll do the best we can so we'll start with uh, who was Luke or who was the author Uh, most people do believe that the main author was a individual by the name of Luke Uh, some said that he was a uh, a Gentile, while others will say that no, no, he was a he was Hebrew. Uh, some would even say that he was possibly even a Jewish priest. Uh, he uh, there's also uh, some who say there's evidence that he was a physician based on some of the medical terminology that he used. Uh, but at the same time, uh, for this time period, uh, classical authors were familiar would be familiar with such terminology, medical terminology. So it could have been just a well-educated individual who who just was well-read. Most of the stuff I think you see related to what we would refer to him as a, a doctor with comes out of his other book, which is referred to as Acts. Uh, so like I said, we do believe that the author's name is Luke. Uh, we know from Acts that he was also a missionary companion of Paul's, uh, most likely with Paul, uh, when Paul was imprisoned in Ephesus as well as in Rome, which is probably how he got a lot of his information uh, related to the book of Acts. Uh, and possibly even a lot of what he knows related to uh, the book of Luke. Uh, he is, for the most part, well-educated. Uh, he spoke Greek, is our understanding, but is also very familiar with the Jewish diaspora. Uh, he knew the, uh, the Septuagint, so the Greek version of the Old Testament. He knew that very well, uh, just based on, again, context within the book of Luke and Acts. Uh, based, on, based on how he wrote about the travels of Jesus and Paul in his books, uh, he was familiar with the geography and traveling uh, around the eastern Mediterranean area. Uh, very familiar with that. <clears throat> uh, there was a group who were known as the, as the Anti-Marcionites, M-A-R-C-I-O-N-I-T-E, uh, and uh, they were a, a group of people who were against the beliefs of Martian who would say, Martian, not Martian, Martian would say that uh, the, the God of the Old Testament is not the same as the God of the New Testament and kind of had a whole little thing about that. Anyways, these individuals thought that Luke was uh, possibly from Syria uh, and he was a physician and he became a disciple of the Apostle Paul and followed Paul up until Paul was murdered, which happened between 64 to 68-ish uh, time period. Uh, they also believe that he was unmarried and childless and lived uh, probably until the age of 84 in the, sea, in the area of Bo, Bo, Boosia. Probably just completely messing that one up, but that's how I've pronounced it. As with all history, others believe that he was a, and what I mean with as with all history, uh, depending on who you ask, the history is a little bit different and hopefully it's consistent at some level. Uh, but even if you look back to, say, more recent history, like the, uh, someone's viewpoint of the Vietnam War versus uh, someone else's viewpoint of the Vietnam War is, is too different, especially if one is Vietnamese and one is American and one is French. Uh, so we use history, and what we try to do is we try to get all these viewpoints together and try to put a good understanding of what history is. So like I said, so as with all history and all historical characters, uh, there is other beliefs of who he was. Like I said, uh, some thought that he was possibly a Jewish Christian and possibly even others thought he was a Jewish priest uh, until he transitioned over to uh, following this Jewish Messiah and then eventually becoming a follower of Christ. And some people refer to that as Christians. However, the majority of historians that I found uh, have 
pretty much pinpointed him as a Gentile. And I think that's where I'll end whenever it's all said and done. Uh, as I've already kind of mentioned, just, but just to make it very clear, he also wrote the book of Acts, or the Acts according to the Apostles is the official name of that. Uh, some have claimed uh, that the books at one point were called First Luke and Second Luke, uh, also known as Luke-Acts along the way. Some have referred to Luke Acts as the New Testament in miniature. So what they mean by that is they start with, uh, so Luke starts with the telling of the story of Jesus in Nazareth and goes all the way to the time of Paul in Rome, which if you go look at everything in Luke and Acts, pretty much everything in there you'll see in the epistles from Paul, you'll see from uh, Peter, uh, what Peter wrote, you'll see from what James wrote, there's a lot of connected pieces within there. The, the work of Luke Acts is actually 28% of the entire New Testament. And just to kind of give you a comparison of that, all of Paul's letters, which there are many, I cannot come to the count right here in this very moment, uh, but is only 24% of the New Testament. Uh, it is believed that he possibly wrote many books uh, along the way, but we ended up with these two. Uh, and the reason we believe that is if you look at verse 1 of chapter 1 of Luke, uh, we are told that this is one of many books uh, written about the events of the time of Jesus on earth, and again eventually to the time of Paul and his missionary journey. Uh, it was typical of the Mediterranean period of the disciples, uh, for the disciples of those they followed to write down the events and sayings of the one they followed, which is exactly what he did with Luke, uh, with Paul. Luke did with Paul. Uh, Luke did not know Jesus. He did not have first-hand knowledge or communication or ever met Jesus. So he got a lot of his information from uh, possibly some of the other apostles from Luke, uh, other early Christian followers of Jesus who got to meet Jesus and knew Jesus along the way. So what we know from this is that of all the works and that Luke most likely created, only a few were chosen. You can say that related to there are other people who followed Paul very closely, other, uh, dis, dis, you could say, disciples of Paul, but they weren't chosen, their books weren't chosen to be part of the canon, and there's reasons for that that we're not going to go into uh, today. But uh, many disciples wrote, but only a few were chosen. We can look at it that way. By the end of the second century, it was common knowledge and widely accepted that Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. Irenaeus, who is a bishop and for the most part a peacemaker in the area of Gaul, uh, which I believe we refer to, refer to now as France, as well as in Turkey, which we used to be referred to as Asia Minor, uh, is and was of course one of the well-known church fathers, and he was the one that this believed this to be true. He he really pushed this idea uh, that Luke was the author of both, of course, the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, Irenaeus also uh, wanted to, to, to push him as being the author uh, to legitimize uh, that this was uh, apostolic orthodox literature in contrast to the heterodox literature that was being created by Martian and the Agnostics uh, who claimed that they had the actual apostolic orthodox documents, which we know based on how everything's played out over the last couple thousand years, it was Luke. Uh, who had the Orthodox scripture, and as Martian and the agnostics who had more of the heterodox um, <clears throat> literature. All right, enough about Luke, a little bit about his audience, and this is just very little compared to the amount of information we possibly could get on this and just the amount of time we have, or limited amount of time. Uh, the first verse of the chapter here of, of, of Luke uh, tells us that he was writing to a person by the name of Theophilus. Uh, Theophilus in Greek means uh, friend of God. Uh, so some had said that Theophilus is actually just a name for a, a symbolic of a group of people who were followers of Christ, uh, everyone who, who looks up to God. Uh, but most likely, and this has been pretty well documented, that Theophilus was a, a historical person. Uh, but as in any scripture, it was written to the people of the time uh, as, as well as for us today. So to the people of that time period, but for us today, for, but for us. The two and the four are significant to them for us. Just like Paul's letters, or pretty much the entire Old Testament was written for a certain audience. Old Testament and New Testament was written for a certain audience to a certain audience, but for us today to continue to use uh, for wisdom and to, to, to learn how to live in the most wise way, most gracious way, loving way, as God has taught. We believe Theophilus was a person of, of status. Uh, as it is known, books would be dedicated to such folks 
uh, for honor, as well as I hope that that person the book was dedicated to would help fund and promote the book. And that's why you see books sometimes, especially in the Near Eastern time period, even to this day, uh, you see books dedicated to people. And that's what we're seeing here. You hope that they would help promote the book. Uh, Luke's audience was most likely in the northern Aegean region, which we refer to today as Greece and Asia Minor, or Turkey, and even more specifically the area of, of Macedonia. And this is based on what we see in Acts 16, uh, Acts chapter 16 and Acts chapter 20. <clears throat> Again, like I said, very brief over the audience. The, the date, it gets a little, uh, the date, when we're speaking of the date, it gets a little bit more complicated because there's a lot of different viewpoints uh, of when Luke was written. And Luke is dependent on when Mark was written and when Mark was finished because Luke, just like Matthew, the, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, pulls a lot of information from uh, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, there is a range that we see here between 60 uh, AD all the way to uh, AD 180. Which is it always really hard to say that AD so the letters AD 180 so it's 180 uh, so uh, there's also some closer dates of between 60 and 80 uh, AD uh, it just kind of depends on how you want to look at that so if you look at it um, let's look at that time period of between uh, AD 60 to AD 80 and what we'll see here is that what we have in the middle of that is in AD 70, uh, you have uh, the fall of the Jerusalem temple. And some have said, well, depending on which side of the, the fall of, uh, of the, the, the temple in Jerusalem will kind of color your viewpoints of how you read and interpret Luke. Uh, but then there's the other side of it uh, where uh, it doesn't really matter because it was obviously written at a certain point, which we're going to get there. Trust me, we're going to get there. Uh, Mark was used by Luke, like I said, and most likely was written between and finished up between 65 and 70. Uh, so if you if you take that day as Mark, then Luke had to be written <coughs> after the destruction of the temple, or at least completed after the destruction of the temple. It's probably already pieces and parts of Luke already created between 65 and 70, if if Luke was in fact writing up until the time that Paul died in 64 and 60, between 64 to 68. So there are probably already parts of Luke created, but couldn't have been completed until after the creation of Mark uh, or the completion of Mark because of him using so much from Mark. Uh, let me give you an earlier option. If you think if you think Mark was possibly written earlier, it could have been. Uh, the date this could have been written around was possibly uh, 62, uh, where we have the closing scene of Acts. As a reminder, Paul died between 64 and 68. Uh, the thought is that he would have written about the death of Paul, uh, the death of Paul, if that would have happened before it was written. But it seems that the consensus here is that the book isn't about, the, 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 the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, is not a biography of Paul. The point of that is about spreading the gospel. So though Paul played, played a cent central character uh, within the book of Acts, that is not the point of the book of Acts, to tell us about the missions of Paul. Uh, the, the, the point of Acts is to tell us about the gospel and the spreading of the gospel in the early church. So that is a, a lot of consensus related to that about why that is not brought up, or his death is not brought up here. But since we are not huge fans of certainty, uh, there is some evidence that it was written in the early 2nd century, so after 100 AD, AD 100, uh, a time when the church was trying to figure out its identity in the Roman Empire. This is a period of time where the Romans uh, were starting to see Christians as po a possible threat. Uh, Justin the Martyr uh, tried to convince them otherwise, uh, but uh, the Romans began to arrest and execute Christians who would not repent. And what I mean by repent is they would not turn to the imperial cult and, and worship the emperor. They would only worship God. They would not worship the imperial, uh, the, 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 the Caesar, the, uh, the emperor. And so they began to be killed for that. And uh, that was under the watch of Domitian as well as uh, Trajan uh, where that happened. We have to remember uh, at one point uh, the uh, Christians were thought to be a Jewish sect. So they were part of the Jewish uh, religion and the Jew Jews had a pass when it came to uh, not being totally persecuted by the Romans. As long as the, the priest, the Jewish priest kept peace, 
and the Herodians and the temple guards and all those folks kept peace within these regions that Rome occupied of Jewish territories, uh, they would not uh, really mess around with the Jews because as long as the Jews were happy uh, and, and not causing problems and paying their taxes, uh, the, the Pax Romana uh, would be okay and everything would be fine and they wouldn't do anything. But it came to a point uh, here in the early uh, second century where it was like, hey, wait, these Christians, it, it happened actually probably before then, but now we're seeing in the early first century, hey, these Christians aren't really like the Jewish people. Uh, they, they talk about this, this Messiah Jesus. Uh, it's not just about the Yahweh God. Uh, they have the Jesus. They have Jesus. They have, a, they have something referred to as the Holy Spirit, and they have they have God. And so they're like, we understand the Jews and their their God, but now we have this this Jesus guy. We have the Holy Spirit that they talk about. We have God, and now it seems like these guys are just a bunch of troublemakers. And so they started getting cracked down, and that separation between the Jewish faith of being protected by the Romans or not being harassed by the Romans has now been separated, and now they're being harassed by the Romans. Very fun stuff. I, I will. <clears throat> so, with all that said about all the years, I will go with uh, Luke being written after seventy. Uh, so, anywhere from the early mid seventies all the way to eighty one eighty is an option. But I think we are closer here to eighty to eighty five. That's where I'm going to stick with that. His name was Luke. He wrote to the people uh, in uh, Macedonia, and he uh, he wrote between or finished this up between eighty and eighty five. Uh, a little bit about the genre of Luke. Uh, some have referred to this as a Jewish narrative, which I could absolutely see that to be true. Uh, I'm not going to argue against that point. So I could see that. It's a, the idea of being a Jewish narr narrative is, is a continuation of the uh, Israel's prophetic history uh, where Jesus is seen as the true David. So the divine promise made to David in 2 Samuel 7 is fulfilled in the book of, of Luke. Uh, think of it as the fulfillment of, of David, of the David story and the fulfillment of all scriptures now coming together here in the story of Luke. One other way you can look at the type of literature that this is, is Hellenistic as a, as, as a Hellenistic biography, uh, which takes the form of focusing on a central protagonist, which of course here would be Jesus, uh, showing the, the portents of the greatness of this person's youth. And as a, uh, we don't know a lot about his early age, but we do know about him as a, a young individual. So in his 30s. Uh, and, and what we see here is that it, it commends his teaching, which it does, and it claims his virtue, which Luke does. And it, it uh, protests his innocence, which Luke does. And um, it, it would protest against anyone who would detract against him. And again, Luke does that when referring to Jesus. So the conclusion we have here is a mix between a Jewish narrative and a Hellenistic biography. So mark those two for you. Uh, this leads to actually quite a um, controversial claim that the Jewish Davidic kingdom has taken place. So the, the Jewish Messiah has come. And the good news of this established kingdom confronts and impinges upon the Gentiles. So what we have here is he, a, a Jewish story is taken of a Jewish man, Jesus. We would call it the Jewish story. And now Luke has told his story to the Greco-Roman friends, so the Gentiles, uh, here is the story of the life of a man uh, who, is, who has brought the Jewish message of salvation, which the Jews were supposed to, but never did, and that the pagans, the Gentiles, need. And that's what the story of Luke is, is about. Uh, some of the compilation of, the, of Luke, because this is just fascinating stuff. Uh, Luke is sourced, like I said, a lot of it is from Mark, as well as from early sayings of Jesus, which is sometimes referred to as M. Uh, he did not, but he did, it seems like he did not directly use M, like word for word, uh, but Matthew used a lot of M because Matthew knew Jesus, uh, is our understanding, and Matthew uh, had quotes, direct quotes from Jesus, and so he, that was some of the stuff used. Uh, the other, the other source is our understanding that was used is Q and L, uh, Q uh, being, of course, the most widely accepted source beyond just the source of Mark. Uh, and we believe that's where he probably got most of his information. Luke is, I'm sorry, Luke, not Luke, uh, Q, which also means, which stands for the word quell, uh, which in uh, German would mean um, source, is, is, um, is, is his main stuff that he gets. And what, what we see from that, we see a lot of the uh, Beatitudes uh, from quell. Uh, we also see uh, the Lord's Prayer uh, from that as well. 
We know that Matthew also used the source Q, uh, but in a different way, using the Q sources in different parts of their own gospel, as in the stories were not in the same order. I think sometimes we think that the stories of the gospel are chronological order, uh, not not necessarily, because if you look at the different gospels and when, uh, and when the stories are placed within the gospels, uh, they're not always in the same order uh, of what you expect, and sometimes that causes some confusion. Uh, like I said, Matthew and Luke run close with Mark, but they don't. Uh, but then they don't. And when they don't, they go off in very different directions. For for example, uh, both have a, the, the birth of Jesus story and the resurrection of Jesus story uh, told differently, but then Mark does not. So two very important things, the birth of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus is not told in Mark, but is told in uh, Matthew and Luke. Uh, the most dominant theory at this time is that Matthew and Luke independently edited Mark and Q, uh, leading to their own versions of their own gospel, which would not be surprising based on how things were written during that time period. It again seems based on what you see in chapter 1, verse 1, that Luke met with many of the disciples of Jesus and other eyewitnesses to cobble together uh, this, this gospel together. I want to speak a little bit about uh, oral transmission here. Uh, and what I mean is about how stories were told uh, verbally or orally. Uh, it was believed. That's how a lot of information, of course, was passed during that time period. There were a lot of people. Most people were not literate, so they could not write down these stories. And so they had these oral traditions of telling these stories. And what they found with this is that actually these oral stories were very quite accurate. So it wasn't like how we do the game telephone today where you start with one thing and it ends up something being very different at the end. Uh, they, the, the traditions and the uh, culture in which they lived in of, of an oral tradition, they were very good at keeping the story straight and very accurate with that. <clears throat> a few themes of the Bible. Uh, other, uh, other Gospels, of course, cover this, but it seems that Luke emphasizes the Holy Spirit, beginnings of the church, female disciples, prayer, the poor, and the overall mission of the church. Uh, what we see from this book is Mary's Magnificat is provided in Luke, the parable of the prodigal son, the, the road to Emmaus story, as well as the ascension is provided in the book of Luke as well. Uh, we would say that a common general theme running throughout Luke is the idea of the, the story of a savior leading, of course, to salvation. And we, we see this of the salvation of the whole world as this leads from, like I said, if you combine the two books of Luke and Acts and seeing them as one, um, two volumes, but, you know, you could just call it like one book, but two volumes of one book. Or, or anyways, Luke, Acts, Luke 1, Luke 2. Uh, what we see here is the story from Nazareth to Rome, pointing to the salvation for all people the Jews and the Gentiles. Uh, Luke is good at explaining God's purpose for salvation, how it works itself out through Israel, uh, through Jesus into the church, and out to the rest of the world. <clears throat> and of course, it can be argued that other Gospels do this as well. Uh, like Luke 19 about uh, Zacchaeus is a good example of this. Uh, if the Jewish people reject the word of God, the outcasts, the tax collectors, and the prostitutes, uh, then the Gentiles will receive what Jesus is trying to say, and that's why Jesus ate with the prostitutes, the tax collectors, and the Gentiles, because they were uh, the Gentiles, because they were willing to listen to who he was as the the Christ, uh, the Messiah. All right, I think that's enough on the actual introduction to Luke. Like I said, there's so much more to this, so much more information you could pull uh, just about this and dig deeper into the genre and the how it's compiled. I mean, there's charts and graphs, especially when you start looking at the dates of when it was possibly written and how it was put together. So, but that's that's where we'll wrap up uh, with this uh, right now. <clears throat> so let's jump over to Luke chapter 16, starting there in verse 19 and go to uh, verse uh, 31. And I think what we'll look at here is, <clears throat> what we'll see actually is that a lot of what you see in chapter 16, some would say, not all, but some would say it has a financial uh, theme to it or how how Jesus talks about the ethical way of dealing with, with money. Uh, so we have the parable of the dishonest manager starts in chapter 16, uh, followed by Jesus, obviously not a fan of how the Pharisees have been using their money. It is broken up by a, a quick comment about divorce, which is a small piece of text from Q, people believe. It feels like a leftover part from somewhere else. And ends up finally here in the end of uh, chapter 16, verse 19, is the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Um, and so we see that 
here. Uh, we don't really look at uh, this section, the rich man and Lazarus, as a as a parable as much as a pointed story or pointed monologue that is pointing to the Pharisees or pointing at the Pharisees for how they are not taking care of the poor, but not only just the poor, but how they are have they have neglected the Jewish people of uh, of, of taking them and leading them to to God. <clears throat> we know throughout Scripture that, or throughout the Gospels, Jesus spoke a lot about money and how we should be shrewd with what was what has been provided to us. And we know uh, this from the parable of the dishonest manager from chapters of this very chapter from sixteen chapter sixteen verses one through thirteen. <clears throat> but the one we see here in in this chapter from verses 19 and 26 is, is about the misuse of what God has provided. But instead of being a believer not helping others, it is someone who did not believe not helping people in need. Uh, they are thus facing a dire, 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 dire consequence. Uh, we as believers on many, in many occasions fail to use <clears throat> what has been provided to help guide people to the faith. Uh, we live in a scarcity mindset. Uh, many of us do. We live in, the, the, like I said, a scarcity mindset instead of a mindset of abundance, uh, of, of all this stuff that God has provided. And how do we use that to help further the kingdom of God? And that's a good idea of what we're getting from this story. The, the Jewish priests were failing to further the kingdom of God based on the way they were acting. Uh, the rich man we read about here is very familiar with the people of the day, uh, listening as they have heard uh, to the people listening to the story because they've heard this sort of story before uh, through Greek satires, satires and comedies of the time. Uh, the satirist uh, would write about the wealthy and how out of touch they were with the people, uh, thus shining a light on their conspicuous consumption. And so the people here, so it's a similar sort of story that Jesus is saying is the story that they'd be familiar with, or at least the style of story of the rich neglecting those who are not as well off. Uh, we, we know from this time period, like I've referred to it already as Pax Romana, uh, this allowed for a lot of wealth to build up in the higher echelons of society. And uh, for the most part, Luke's character that he is being described here by Jesus is being modeled after these people, those both Jews and Gentiles who have made it a significant amount of money and significant amount of wealth on the backs of other people. We're going to focus on the Jewish people here. We're going to focus mainly, actually, even more focus on the Pharisees or the priestly class because they're the ones that Jesus is, seems to be talking to here, especially if you look at the rest of the context of this, of this chapter. So with all that said, uh, let's jump into uh, verses 19 through 31, and I'll, I'll read this here for us, and then we will uh, make our way uh, through the rest of this. Now... <clears throat> there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus' bad things, but now he is being comforted and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you are between us and you there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able to, and that none may cross over from there to us. And then he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to, the, to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Which is what the prophets, Moses and the prophets, which is the Old Testament, predicted. That somebody, the Messiah, is going to rise from the dead. Raised from the dead. Be raised from the dead. Up from the grave. And so he's going to rise from the dead. and But they're not even going to listen to that. Which, 
as we know, in hindsight, they don't. And so let's look at this, so verses 19 through 21. Uh, it's interesting here that we have, uh, this is the other story of Lazarus. The other story of Lazarus is actually in John 11 through uh, 11, 1 through 44, uh, where that Lazarus uh, who dies um, and then is uh, rose from the dead from Jesus. Uh, you have that version of Lazarus, which is from John, versus this version of Lazarus who remains uh, within Abraham's bosom, and we'll discuss what that looks like. So he remains uh, dead to the to the world. Uh, Luke provides us here with two snapshots of, of people from very different sides of the financial spectrum. Uh, what we want to learn a little bit here about just the the clothing or the vestments that the <clears throat> that the rich ruler was wearing. Uh, they were. Uh, Easily, based on just how he describes him here, he's easily able to see the difference in the social status between the two people. The purple dyeing process was a striking, uh, was a striking luxury and very expensive. So to have purple, uh, purple tunic or purple robe, uh, first of all, just showed that you were very, very wealthy. And then with him having the garments, which uh, are, are understood to be white garments uh, amongst the elite, but, but you, so you'd have the white garments under and then you have the purple tunic on top and this would actually put you at a whole new level like this is the top 0.1% of the population or you could even say the 1% of that population uh, the type of feast here that you see uh, is probably most likely being compared to how uh, King Herod Agrippa was living and he had these daily huge legendary feasts uh, where hundreds could have been fed, but only a few do, which have led a lot to waste. Uh, verse 20, what happens here uh, with the naming of Lazarus is that the poor man is being humanized and is no longer being objectified by Jesus through the story. Jesus never objectified him, but he is making this person a human by giving him a name, which kind of tells you a little bit about the non-human way the rich man was acting. <clears throat> Uh, we learn that Lazarus is most likely crippled as he lies at the gate of the rich man, again separating the two classes in a very significant way. As we continue on into verse 21, Lazarus, the poor man, is so poor and weak from hunger that he cannot fend off the dogs. And with that, all he wants is, is, is what is left for the dogs at the end of the meal. Uh, we know that these dogs are not lap dogs uh, like what we see in other parts of the scripture. Uh, they are not just home, house dogs or guard dogs. These are mongrels. These are pack dogs who, you know, roam the city and eat whatever doesn't uh, stand still long enough for them to eat. So not very pleasant animals. And so what is happening here is the author, uh, or Jesus, as he tells the story, has continued this as a stage of relationship uh, between the rich and the poor. And, and then what this does is it places the poor person as a subhuman to where even dogs would power over him. Uh, the dogs, we can say here, the dogs are not licking the wounds in, in sympathy. Uh, it was more of uh, just out of a very disgusting thing going on. What this does to, of course, Lazarus is makes him a social outcast, because societal outcast, because he is unclean. Uh, the type of meal mentioned here uh, was so opulent that the people would use loaves of bread as napkins and then toss them to the ground to be wasted. That's pretty bad, but to just put this in perspective and context, uh, the, the loaves of bread isn't like a, a loaf of Miss Baird's. It was more likely a uh, non-leavened kind of what they refer to. So we we nowadays call it either pan bread or uh, pita bread. Uh, so it's like kind of more that, that flat bread is being used. But anyways, it was food that was being wasted. You have this poor man outside and food was being wasted while he was waiting, hoping to, to eat. Uh, the amount of food at the table per day was estimated could pay 30 workers uh, a year's wage. Uh, the word fed here in verse uh, 21 uh, could also be the word sated, uh, S-A-T-E-D. It's the same word that's being used in uh, chapter 9, verse 17, with the loaves and the fishes story, where Jesus feeds uh, the thousands with loaves and fishes, and how everyone felt after eating, as well as what you see in chapter 6, verse 21, uh, where it says how the hungry will be filled. He, the, the man just wants to be, to be able to eat, to, to no longer have this nine uh, desperate hunger that he has uh, again, the point that's being made here by Jesus as he tells the story, it seems, is that even the leftovers from the rich man uh, would be more than enough to, to keep uh, Lazarus healthy and full. There's more than enough. And even without, and, and even as we looked at this, even without changing what the rich man eats, 
without removing or reducing what the rich man eats, uh, there would be plenty of food uh, for Lazarus. Also note here, uh, where unlike the clothing being described for the rich man, Lazarus only wears sores, uh, which to our Jewish friends would mark him, again, as unclean or untouchable. So Jesus is using very uh, pointed words that our Jewish folks would, would very much understand related to being unclothed, uh, related to the sores, related to dogs uh, being involved in the story, all, all things that make somebody uh, detestable and make them a societal outcast. Uh, it is believed that the, the word, well, it is the same word. It's the same word that uh, when Job was referred to, so in the book of Job, Job sores, it's the same sort of Job, uh, the source that you see here. Uh, and both, as we remember, and this is what people would think back then, and if you remember Job's friends, is that, hey, Job, hey, you have those sores, man, because you sinned. You did something wrong. Or your parents sinned, and you know you need to figure out what that was and seek repentance, and then you'll be happy and healthy like us. And the same was believed about people. So the the wealthy were those who were blessed by God, and the the poor were those who were being cursed by God. And so if they can figure out why they're being cursed, maybe they can work out of it, and they'll be blessed, and then ultimately poor. Kind of a, a whole uh, the the early version of the prosperity gospel is what we see here. Uh, we should first see here that the rich man is not named, but remains anonymous. And, and this is contrasting to the, with the way of life, or was at that point, or is, where the poor have no identity, and they're faceless, while the rich are well known and sought after. And so that continues to happen this day, where uh, they, we have the faceless poor, and these uber, super wealthy, rich, well-known um, celebrities. And, and we have this huge... Um, division or chasm uh, between the two. And uh, there's nothing wrong with being a celebrity and there's nothing wrong with having money. That's not what this story is about. It's what is what you do with what has been provided to you is what this is more about. Uh, it seems that the rich man also doesn't have a name because Jesus was trying to make a point here that uh, which is allowing those who are listening, the rich who are listening, the Pharisees who are listening to see that uh, it is it is they, it is them who Jesus is speaking about, uh, and to see that, oh wait, Jesus is actually talking to us about how we're treating uh, the people who are laying at our gate. Uh, again, like I said, most likely uh, this audience, again, based going back to verse 14, uh, is uh, kind of gives us that idea of he's talking to these well-to-do Pharisees. Uh, verses 22 through 24 uh, we see how the circumstances of fortune reverse after both men die. But before we go there, notice how the rich man is buried, but Lazarus, Lazarus is not. Which is another point Jesus is trying to make about Lazarus being looked upon as non-human. Uh, to, to, have, to not have a proper burial uh, in that time period, many believed, led to the curse of God, uh, where there was no chance of redemption, and the departed soul's fate. Uh, would 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 not be good. It would not end well. So so the one with only dogs as companions on earth is transported to a heavenly place. Uh, we will refer to as Hades by angels, which is it's a little odd that it's referred to uh, that that the angels are even brought into this because it wasn't typical um, uh, to talk about angels in Jewish literature at least doing this sort of thing within Jewish literature. You really didn't see angels participation in. in literature at this point until probably about the second century. Uh, we know from uh, the Talmud, uh, which is, as we know, to be the primary source of the Jewish law, uh, that the use of paradise and Abraham's bosom have similar meanings as a place of blessedness beyond the grave, which is, which is where uh, Lazarus is taken. It's a, it's a place of bliss and comfort that was previously uh, not known by him. Hades is mentioned here, and, and how, and we know it to be the Greek equivalent of the Jewish word Sheol, uh, which was referred to as the place of the dead. Not the dead dead, just the dead, and we can get a little bit more into that, but these are people, it's from, for the most part, people who have died and are waiting final judgment, and we have this compartmentalization. We'll, let's get back to that here. We'll get that here in a second. Uh, <clears throat> no, actually, let's go ahead and just do that right now. Uh, we, we talked about uh, Hades, uh, oh, I think it's like our, maybe our second or third difficult sayings of Jesus. We go back and look at that. 
Uh, but many today in that time believed that Hades was the, the universal destiny of all humankind, to be where the righteous and the unrighteous went, um, yet the, it was compartmentalized. You had the righteous in one area and the unrighteous in the other. It was kind of the, uh, it was the holding place until the judgment of God. And there's still a lot of discussion about this, and it's, uh, it seems to be coming across, even if you go to seminaries and, uh, and speak to professors there, of Baptist seminaries and uh, as well as just other seminaries, that this has become a pretty common understanding of what the afterlife looks like until the, the final judgment. But with that said, there's still a lot of uh, misunderstandings, still a lot of confusion about what the afterlife looks like. <clears throat> uh, Lucas here is using paradise of Lazarus and the place of torment for the rich man, uh, like again, both in the area of Hades, where it seems he understands that the former is rewarded and the latter is tormented until the day of the Lord. Some refer to this as the day, of course, like I said, the day of judgment. At the end of verse 23, Luke believes that the folks in Hades can see those in paradise, uh, or sometimes you can refer to that even in the presence of God. Uh, and then if you want to take that even further, is that, well, anywhere where you have God is heaven. Uh, so, but God can go to Sheol, he can go to Hades is our understanding, at least on the righteous side, or and has. Uh, and can be people can be brought out of and have been brought out of uh, Sheol. So, again, to talk all about that is is a, is a whole class study in itself. Uh, but there's just so much, so much to this. The idea of the compartmentalization of Hades actually comes out of the book of Second uh, Esdras, uh, which can be found uh, in the Apocrypha in its Second Esdras chapter seven, uh, verse seventy-six through eighty-seven. I'd encourage you to to look that up and to read a little bit more about it. Uh, so what we have here is the rich man experiences Hades as a torment and agony, while Lazarus experiences it in a blissful state. <clears throat> Uh, verse 24, we can note a few things here that though the rich man did not seem to acknowledge Lazarus on earth, uh, he knew who he was, uh, certainly knew who he was while in torment because he's actually being referenced here. He also knows who Abraham is, so it makes us wonder if Jesus is speaking here to the Pharisees. I would say yes, he is, and how they have ignored the people of Israel for their own gain. Earlier verses in this chapter could lead us to that thought, and I think that's one thing we can continue to, to look at here. Uh, one other thing that we can think of, is that this man has not learned much as he is still asking to be served and certainly not seeking forgiveness. So I'm referring again to the rich man. He, is, he still has not been humbled by his new circumstances of torment. He, uh, he still refers to Abraham as father, and he seems to know the name of Lazarus, yet he never helped him while on earth. He thinks that Abraham was there to carry out errands, much like many do today, did today, do today, and have in the past where they think that, of course, God is a convenient errand boy for us, uh, for our every whim. And sometimes that's how we pray, is that, oh, God, do this for me, do that for me. Uh, you Make life more convenient. Uh, and that is kind of what this uh, presumptuous uh, individual is doing, as he has not learned here. <clears throat> the irony of all of this uh, is that we know Abraham was a person of hospitality to strangers, as we know from Genesis 18, 1 through 15, a model that the wealthy man should be following of being hospitable, as all the Pharisees, if they were truly sons of Abraham, should have been following uh, Abraham's hospitality, hospitality model, and they were not. Uh, we see the final irony here is that the one who never gave alms uh, which Pharisees were to do to the poor, uh, all Jewish people are to do to the poor, for the poor, is asking from the very one he refused to see. Very interesting. Uh, verses 25 uh, through 26 here, Abraham speaks to the rich man in, in quite a pointed and possibly you could say wry way. Not like rye bread, but W-R-Y. Uh, yeah. uh, so the, the rich man made his choices here on earth uh, whilst he was here on earth, and now he is to live with them, something that was quite common in wider Jewish Greco-Roman literature. There are consequences to your actions. I think we kind of live like that today, or we should believe that is true today, consequences of our actions. The devil is not always the one making you do it. Uh, we also see here that the gate that separated the two men, it could have been open. Uh, it is now fixed. So the, the chasm between uh, Lazarus and the, the rich man, uh, the, the gate that at one point could have been opened is now fixed. And when I refer to it, it could have been opened. I'm referring to the, the rich man's gate, uh, which 
could have been opened uh, as he and he could have walked out and he could have given uh, help to Lazarus, uh, to Lazarus. But remember, he did not. And what do we know from gates of uh, city gates of that time period? It was the place where justice was given. It would be where they would do they would hold court at the gates, and then justice was meted out uh, to to those who either deserved it or not deserved it. And you know how that how justice rules. And at this point, he would not do that. No justice at the gate. Just this unfortunate, pitiful man, Lazarus, that no one would help. <clears throat> uh, we, what we're looking here, as we look at where Lazarus is now, where the rich man is, is the, the idea or the principle of the last uh, becoming first and the first becoming last, as we know from chapter 13, verse 30, where we talk about the weeping and gnashing of teeth, which seems to be uh, the point of where the rich man is, uh, and he is kind of in the outer places whenever you compare him to where Lazarus is at this point. So the one who had enjoyed uh, the good things of life is now the one uh, <clears throat> is now not, and the one who did not enjoy the good things of life, enjoy the good things of life now is. Uh, so Lazarus now will be forever comforted uh, by being in the presence of God, or at least is in a good place at this point. W with that, we can solidify our view that Jesus is truly speaking to the Pharisees here, as Abraham uh, is the one that is being referenced to, because the Pharisees, of course, would know who Abraham is and would, would uh, call out to Abraham. A Gentile would not, because they did not have that same sort of understanding. Uh, so when I talk about Gentile, I'm not talking about a rich, I'm talking about a rich Roman person who would be a Gentile, wouldn't look at Abraham the same way, say, a Jewish person, especially a Jewish Pharisee, would look at Abraham and look for help from Abraham. <clears throat> uh, though some think there is a path between heaven and hell in the afterlife, it seems uh, what we see here is that there is not. There is a, a large chasm between the two realities. And what I actually probably should say here is that within Hades, there's the, the, the way it's compartmentalized based on how they believed it to be at that point in that time period is that you could pass uh, from one the righteous side to the unrighteous side and the righteous to the righteous side, and that just is not how it worked. Though Hades here is, is not hell, it seems judgment has already been made on the rich man, though it is not the final judgment. Uh, so torment will happen, but not the final judgment until all are finally judged. Uh, we could argue that the chasm here is, is from the rich man. Again, he has no name and the, and the name man Lazarus. The rich man caused the chasm based on the decisions while he made on earth. That's what we see through verse 26. As we look at verses 27 through uh, 29, uh, the rich man has realized that he is not going to move from his current situation, so he pleads for the salvation of his five brothers. Uh, this is really not about generosity for fellow humans, but again, the inner circle of friends and family who can do something for him, the hope being maybe they can pray him out of, of this unfortunate situation that he is in, or maybe... Um, <clears throat> make some sort of deal, uh, which is what would, would happen in those circles. Uh, and th these are the uh, what we would see from chapter 14, 12 through 14, uh, the idea of you can, uh, well, this is actually against what Jesus was saying from chapter 14, 12 through 14, where uh, you don't just invite the people who can provide the same hospitality to you. You invite everyone to your banquet. And the, 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 the way it actually worked back then was like, okay, if you can scratch my back and I can scratch yours, you're invited to our big group of fun. Uh, but if you cannot help me, then I don't want to help you. And that's how that is. And it still happens again to this day. Uh, so he still does not see Lazarus as a human here. He still sees us as somebody uh, who can satisfy his desire. And this is the desire of getting out of tormented Hades area. <clears throat> Uh, the reference we see to the Moses and the prophets is a reference, as I said before, to the Hebrew scriptures uh, and uh, what we refer to, of course, as the Old Testament. All right, the final two verses, verses 30 and 31. Uh, this is a bit funny or ironic. I don't know if this any thing in this story is funny, uh, but maybe ironic is a better word. In, in that uh, this was written after Jesus had already been resurrected. Now, Jesus is telling this before his resurrection, but it's written after Jesus' resurrection. And it kind of makes you wonder what earlier readers would have thought whenever they read, read this. Uh, it, this is a common thought uh, that people would come from the dead to help those who were still alive, which is what uh, the rich man is asking for. It also revealed their fate or the fate of others in the world. So if someone dead come alive and say, hey, this is actually what's going to happen to you, my friend. Uh, there is a common belief that that's how that happened. Uh, Lazarus is not allowed uh, to go, and the brothers are not allowed to be warned of the fate awaiting them. The laws and the prophets should be enough. If they were to read them, 
to actually read the, 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 the Hebrew scripture and actually live out what it taught, such as what Abraham taught and what Moses had written about and what the prophets had written about, uh, they would understand how they should live, and it's not how they were living. They should live where they are providing for those who need and are in need. If this man knew the patriarch Abraham, he would have known the scripture as well. He, he very likely was very familiar with the law and the prophets, yet did not live in such a way as we know from the Hebrew scripture. The poor should be taken care of. And there are many of us today who we know the Bible, but we don't know the Bible, as in we don't live based on what we've learned from reading scripture and from praying and uh, having that connection with God. Uh, we, we, we are very... We, we have a lot of information, but we do not know who God is. And that's what is happening here. So this rich man, who is accustomed to getting his way, continues to ask for such a favor, yet it continues to be denied. Uh, the use of the word listen here uh, by Abraham in verse 31 is a prominent theme uh, throughout the book of Luke, as well as in Acts. And it's the idea of those who hear will believe and then have faith in God. Uh, so, But repentance is required uh, for this, as we know from Luke and Acts, and the rich man is not willing to repent. Uh, makes you wonder if Jesus is foreshadowing here his own resurrection, knowing even though uh, that won't persuade uh, these people to come to God. And what we know now, right, is that no, they didn't. Uh, well, some did. Now, there is, there is uh, evidence that there were Pharisees who did say, oh, wait, this is the Messiah. Hallelujah. I'm going to follow the, this Jewish Messiah. Uh, but many did not. So some things to think about as we go through this, uh, as we wrap up here. What would have happened to the rich man if he would have given the poor man scraps? Would he still be in the uh, the tormented side of Hades? Uh, most likely that act alone would have not saved him. Uh, he would have to have lived uh, more in the spirit of the Good Samaritan who saw another, most likely an enemy, uh, close to death and provided you know food, medical care, shelter, clothing uh, to that that person. So they had this spirit of giving. It wasn't giving out of, oh, I have to, or oh, this is a box I check off. It was a spirit of giving, the, the, a desire and the love of a fellow human being. And that's, and that comes from the faith, having faith in, in God. Uh, we, we know, uh, we, we see nowhere where Jesus tells us to give scraps or leftovers uh, or remnants to those in needs. Instead, what he teaches, uh, we are to be, uh, that, the, that all people are to be at the dinner table. All are to come together. All to be, to, to, to be fed. All are on equal footing uh, before God. And that's hard for a lot of us to, to swallow. Uh, the, the rich man is an example of what people have done since the beginning of the human race and to this day. That we, they, turn their hour uh, eyes away from those in need and, and spend our attention on satisfying our own desires. And that's the point I hope that we get from that is that is not how we're supposed to, to live. It is not about our own desires and our own comfort and our own needs. It's also about helping others and helping others in a way that helps them to, to, to grow in their faith. And then it would help us grow in our faith of who God is. All right. That's it. Next time we will uh, continue in Luke's. We'll, uh, Luke will probably have uh, two to three new stories slash parables uh, that we will discuss. And uh, yeah, and go from there. I hope you have a good rest of your week. Thanks. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.